Narcissa's idea was to go 50 nautical miles from Port Stanley over to St. Joseph. Narcissa's canal was gonna be 35 feet deep, 400 feet wide, and with just 14 locks. Now, in 1903, he goes to Parliament and he says, I wanna build a canal. It, it didn't get through the second reading. He tries again in 1903. He tries again in 1905, 1908, 1911. And the story goes on and on and on. I'm Mandy Sinclair, and on season two of Postcards from Huron County, I'll be delving into some of the industries that developed when settlers arrived in Huron County on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Neutral peoples in an area that was subject to the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. When I asked listeners what they wanted to learn about should a second season of Postcards from Huron County go ahead, one of our dedicated listeners, Krista, suggested the founding of St. Joseph's on the shores of Lake Huron. After delving into the archives and researching the history, I was sold on the idea. Migration from Quebec, or New France as it was known then, plans for a multi-million dollar canal system, a bustling economy that included an organ factory and sizable hotel on the corner of Highway 21 and County Road 84, a visionary dubbed the father of the St. Lawrence Seaway, it all piqued my interest. And who better to chat about the founding of the area than a descendant of the true visionary, Mark Canton. My name is Mark Canton. I am the great-grandson of Narcisse Canton. I grew up in Detroit. However, we always had a cottage in St. Joseph, Ontario. So we would spend our summers there. And I really give the credit of keeping the history of St. Joseph alive to my Uncle Knapp. Napoleon Canton. He had a uh, personal archives in St. Joseph. And being young, I always spent a lot of time over there. He had recently retired. You know, he had just retired when I when I started spending my summers there. So uh, he always uh, told me the stories. And he did so with so much enthusiasm that, uh, you know, it was easy for me to listen along. And then, you know, the archives that he had were always um, very open, very welcoming. And, uh, and uh, very hands-on where you can go in there, you can thumb through pages. So he would you know, explain just about every story that there was to explain. So um, I always had a very big interest in history. And I moved to Canada when I was 22 years old. I met a Canadian girl, married her in 1988. From 1988 until say the first 10 years, we were very busy starting to raise our family. It wasn't until uh, the startup of the play Narcissus that my dad, John Paul, he had he had just moved back to Canada as well. And he uh, he wanted me to get interested and get involved with historical society, the St. Joseph Historical Society, who at that time had just taken over the uh, the ownership of the archives and all the documents and paperwork. I really became hooked once I got back into reading the stories, you know, and remembering from when I was a little boy. And then it just is something that is well, it's more than just a hobby. It's it's a passion of my wife and I. It's that we just um, we try to promote it as much as we can, and uh, and it isn't just about the history of Saint Joseph. You know, I mean, it's 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 a very it's a really interesting story, but it was more about the um, the faith that they had in Narcissus and his ideas. You know, it was such a big undertaking. Let's dive in. In season one of Postcards from Heron County, on the episode two, I chatted with Robert Lee, a historian focused on the Huron Tract. He told us about the development of Goderidge and the settlers who came to Huron County, largely from England and Scotland. 
But there's obviously more to Huron County than just British settlers. A wave of French Canadian settlers eventually made their way to the Huron Tract in the mid 1840s, hailing from Quebec. Can you tell us who these folks were and why they chose to leave Quebec and relocate to the Huron Tract? Yeah, sure I can. Um, so the original settlers were, uh, I believe it was uh, the Gelinas, uh, the Jeffreys, Durands, the Corvus. Um, they were kind of the first settlers that came. And the reason why they left Quebec was because there, it was living in Quebec at that time. It, you know, it was very hard to, to make a living or even feed your family for that matter. And I think the rumor spread of about how wonderful it was in Southwest Ontario. And of course, that's when the, um, uh, Canada land company was really promoting people to move there. So they, they first, they walked, you can imagine that they walked from Quebec, um, all the way through. And in 1840, I can tell you that Southwest Niagara, well, the lakeshore was not what you see today. Um, it was, uh, it was full of birch trees. In fact, that's why they call it, uh, uh the original settlement was called Pointe Bolo, which is, uh, the point of many birch trees. And if you translate it anyways, the, um, uh, it was tough enough to get here. However, it wasn't just about getting the land. They had Lake Huron, which was so bountiful in fish that, you know, they always knew that they could at least feed their families. At least they had something, some kind of sustenance, some kind of self-support that they could uh, rely on. So they, uh, the, the first three or four settlers moved down. And of course, they sent word back. And then uh, we were kind of in the second wave when you have somebody like Pierre Canton, um, and it used to be called Cante, or well, that's the French uh, pronunciation of Canton. Uh, him, along with uh, the Charettes and uh, the Laportes, uh, they came back, you know, as well, and they settled. Um, and if you can imagine the harshness, you know, at first, you know, they're moving on to Lake Huron, and anybody who knows anything about Lake Huron knows that it's not a fun place to be in the middle of the winter. Um, however, they uh, they struggled through. And even just to, to farm the land, the first thing they had to do was knock all the trees down and pull all the stumps. So, I mean, at first they, you know, they planted in between the stumps and things like that to just to grow some sort of a crop, but you know, they, they made it and uh, they did well and they were prosperous. So um, Pierre Canton, he was the son of a, a fellow by the name Antoine Canton. And then Narcisse, of course, is the son of Pierre. So that's uh, where our story kind of begins. The Cantons were shipbuilders. And uh, they actually came from France to Canada uh, as an invitation from the Hudson Bay Company to build ships. And there's always been carpenters in the Canton family. Um, I'm, myself, I'm a carpenter. My four brothers are carpenters. My dad, all my uncles, my grandfather. The, the list goes on. Anyways, um, I always tell people I'm a carpenter by trade. My wife and I had a company that we've been building since 1632. Um, but shipbuilding was our trade. Now, I've never built one myself, aside from a Lego Titanic that I'm still working on. But anyways, uh, it, it was something that, you know, we immediately fell in love with the area, you know, and it was uh, somewhere where where you you had opportunity. There was there was opportunity for life there. That kind of leads me into my next question. Given that the Canada Company was a British land development, were there any conflicts between the company and the community at the time of arrival, given that they weren't of British descent? You know, I don't think there was, um, not that I ever heard of, um, because there was so many different French families and it wasn't just the French that were, uh, were moving to the area. Um, not, not far behind the French were the Germans and, and a lot of Germans. If you go four miles to the 
the uh, east, you find Zurich, and Zurich was uh, predominantly German. It was Zurich was German, and, and Saint Joseph was French. And I'd like to tell you that they mixed well, but they didn't. But that's okay. Um, the French married the French, the Germans married the Germans, and that's the way it was. However, um, I don't think that there was any conflict that I have ever read or researched. And I mean, I've done an awful lot of research on this. What industries started to develop then with the arrival of the French community in St. Joseph's? Fishing, primarily. Uh, farming, doing their best at that. Um, logging was a big thing. Uh, you know, there was lots of wood to to mill and sell. So there was a, a lot of uh, that was the original manufacturing that you would see prior to St. Joseph uh, being founded. So in 1846, Antoine Canton arrived in Goderidge and established himself in the boat building business with the Hudson's Bay Company purchasing their boats, as you mentioned. Um, his family originated from France and arrived in New France, given their shipbuilding trade reputation. And eventually they relocated um, south of Bayfield. And it was here that Narcisse Canton was born in 1870. Can you tell listeners about uh, who Narcisse was? Narcisse was one of 10 children. So Narcisse was born in 1870. And they say when he was born, it was almost like he was born with a veil on because they thought he was going to be something special right from the start. He did turn out to be something special, but it was interesting that they foretold that. And uh, he lived a pretty quiet life, you know, helping his dad on the farm and what have you and, and helping his dad in the, in the carpentry business. But it wasn't for him. They knew that he knew there was something else that he wanted. He was often caught uh, sitting out on the lake bank, watching the ships pass by out of Goderidge. And uh, nobody really understood what his, his passion was on that. So in 1889, he married the girl across the street, Josephine Denemy. But he immediately wanted to be self-employed and a self-made man. So he started trading cattle out of pencil. And he was sending these cattle to Chicago and New York and wherever, all different ports in the, in the United States. But to better look after his business, he actually moved to Buffalo, New York um, in 1889, shortly after they were married. And that's where my grandfather and my great uncle were born. They were actually born in Buffalo, New York. And when he was in Buffalo, this is where his interest really peaked in the canal business is he seen the well, he's seen the, the workings of the Erie Canal and he's seen where it could be improved or what he thought could be improved. And he started coming up with this idea that he could improve the canal system. And when he first came up with this idea, his first original idea was just to go from Lake Erie to Lake Huron at the shortest point. But in order to do that, you, if, if you could understand what St. Joseph looked like or that area looked like, it, it really was just desolate, you know? So, and his idea was so much grander. So, um, the first thing he had to do was attract investors. And uh, when he was in Buffalo, he was working for a manufacturing outfit as a salesman by a fellow by the name of Oliver Cabana. And Oliver Cabana, he was sitting with him one day and he pitched this idea to him about this canal business. And Oliver Cabana was really taken by this thing. So Oliver, he sets up um, meetings with some more, uh, some of his colleagues, you know, he was uh, at the time, Oliver Cabana was the president of Liberty Bank in Buffalo. So he had a lot of people, um, you know, in his, uh, you know, he could contact and, uh, and really introduce nurses to. So he set up a meeting with a fellow by the name of Charles Reed, uh, Lord Shaughnessy, 
And as soon as Narcissus went in there and pitched this idea to them, they were immediately sold on it. And they said, this is a fantastic idea. And what it was going to do is take about 600 miles off the round trip going from, you know, instead of going down through the St. Clair River and going out through Detroit into the Lake St. Clair, he was going to cut, take a shortcut straight across southwestern Ontario. And understanding that this is 1890s, you know, the beginning of the 1890s, people at first were thinking, this guy must be crazy. You know, it was 50 nautical miles. And they finally, their first initial budget was $50 million. So it was going to cost a million dollars a mile in 1896. So they had to come up with a way to figure out, you know, I mean, you're okay, fine. You're going to come across, but what are you going to end up at in the St. Joseph? It was nothing but a beach. So he actually came up with the idea to buy the town site, which he did so. And he did, and he named it St. Joseph after his uh, favorite patron saint, his favorite saint. People ask that, why, why St. Joseph? Well, St. Joseph was somebody that he truly believed in as a, as a Catholic. And, uh, and so he named it after him, not unlike Brother Andre naming the oratory in, in Montreal, St. Joseph's oratory. You know, the same devotion, you know, and that he comes into the story a little bit later. So anyways, um, he buys the town site and he knows that people are going to say, well, what's in St. Joseph that's so special? So he immediately starts to develop what they called an instant city. And back in 1890s, it really hit the papers. I mean, people were just flabbergasted about how how quick this city was developing. I mean, he immediately started building manufacturing, um, two brickyards, the hotels, um, uh, the, uh, they had an organ factory, they had retail shops. I mean, this thing, this thing expanded like London is today, you know, I mean, it was growing so quick that, um, so then it was time as he had started his city to start petitioning the government. Now, Narcissus's idea was at first, as I was saying, to go 50 nautical miles from Port Stanley over to St. Joseph, as simple as that. Um, it was going to be private investors and so, and it was going to be, uh, so much, a, a ton, you know, to go across. Right. So the payback was almost within just a few years, the $50 million. So that there was certainly, you know, viable to do so at that time. And so he, in 1903, he actually brought, you know, things are well well going, you know, going well in his time, he's got his plans ready and he goes to parliament and he says, I want to build a canal. And it, um, it, it didn't get through the second reading. He tries again in 1903, same thing. First reading dismissed. He tries again in 1905, 1908, 1911. And the story goes on and on and on. The one thing that people always have told me, and my uncle told me, is the one thing Narcissus lacked. He was a, a born salesman, but he had no political connections. You know, he didn't have he didn't have that faith from his the government that he did from his investors. Finally, in 1914, they finally say, "Okay, Narcissus, go and build your canal." I want to back the story up a little bit though, because at first he wanted to just go 50 nautical miles. And seeing how this thing was going to take off and through the encouragement of his investors, he actually expanded it 
from the 50 nautical miles just across from Lake Huron to Lake Erie to a waterway from Duluth, Minnesota, all the way to the ocean using the St. Lawrence River. Now, by that time, uh, the St. Joseph Canal and Power Company was turned into what they, we call the Great Lakes and Atlantic Power and Canal Company. And that was incorporated in 1914. So in May of 1914, we have permission now from the government to go and build our canal. But unfortunately, World War I breaks out in August that year. And regardless of it being um, private funds, no matter what, the government puts a moratorium, a, a stop on all capital projects. So Narcissus isn't the, you know, he's, he's, he's a promoter. He tells his investors, don't worry. This is going to be a short war. We're going to go over there. We're going to clean up everybody over there. We're going to be right back at business. Well, that war went on, as we all know, for, you know, four or five hard years. And by the time the war was over with, people were starting to get a little bit antsy, you know, about their money being invested in this white elephant of a town called St. Joseph. You know, by the time the, the war was over with, the Balmoral Hotel was built, um, not open for business. However, it was built, the structure was up. So he had to come up with an, a, another way to finance this thing. And he does. At that time, he enters into an agreement with what they call the Roberts families. The Roberts family was in uh, Montreal and they owned the waterway rights from Lake St. Louis to Lake St. Francis. And there's about a 75 foot drop between those two lakes. Well, with an engineer under his employee, he develops a, a hydroelectricity plant and that was gonna cost an extra $250 million. So that raised the overall canal project to a half a billion dollars in 1914. So now we're talking a lot of money. However, I wanna explain how good of an idea it was versus what we have today. Narcissus Canal um, was going to be 35 feet deep, 400 feet wide, and with just 14 locks. Now, it would, of course, as the story is going to end one day, we're going to find out he was about 50 years before his time. You know, that's that's basically 1953. They did build the St. Lawrence Seaway. It took the resources of two governments, the United States and Canada, and uh they, they dug it 27 feet deep. So even as a result of that, you know, Narciss knew when we switched from the power of sale to the power of steam, you know, it's what was, was pretty much what you see in there. He knew that the ships were just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's interesting because I actually just saw this on a, on a newsfeed and uh, they showed the, a, a picture of the Titanic with a picture of a modern day, cruise ship behind it and you would think that the titanic could actually fit on the back end of that thing as a dinghy that's how massive these ships are so the ships have as Narciss predicted have gone from being you know the wexford at say 350 feet to ships that are now 17 1800 feet long you know and as a result of that you know we're limited to what we can actually get through the saint lawrence seaway I'm not bashing the people who, you know, that was a huge undertaking. And uh, I'm not sure if Narcissus ever could really have the concept of how big of an undertaking it was. However, it is interesting that he had the forethought at that time, knowing that those ships were just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. One of his proposals, and this is uh, in one of his proposals that I have here with me, um, he goes and he sells it to his investors saying, even in World War I, 
you know, the United States, as we know, you know, can produce an awful lot of stuff in a very short amount of time. And when World War One broke out, they started putting ships together, you know, baby flat top uh, aircraft carriers, things like that. And they put they took ships and they just made whatever they possibly could to get them out into the to the uh, into the war zone. And uh, they actually used to have to they were building them in the Great Lakes. They were building them in two pieces so that they could actually get down the, the St. Lawrence Seaway down the river and then putting them back together in the ocean. Well, Narcissus brought that to their attention that, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could just building them in one piece? You know, so it was very interesting that way. So Narcissus, uh, you know, it was very interesting. Um, my wife and I have, uh, we've retained an enormous amount of stuff from the day, you know, as far as relics and documents and furniture and things like that from the hotel. And, and uh, really, we, we just love that aspect. So when I say that it isn't always about the story, about the seaway, it's more about the dream, you know? So I, I enjoyed that part of it, you know, and I, I still, I, I, that's one of the favorite, favorite parts for me is, is just the, the dream that a man had, you know, to, to be able to come up with these ideas and, and promote them like he did. What would Huron County and specifically St. Joseph look like today had oh this goodness. actually come to fruition? Well, I'll tell you, I, I actually, it's funny you asked that question. When it, I, again, I got very interested in history at a very young age. And as soon as I had the wherewithal to draft, which I learned at a young age, I was probably, I think I was maybe 10 years old or 12 years old. I actually sketched um, a three-dimensional sketch of what I thought St. Joseph would look like in the future. And it looked like downtown London, you know, and I, I truly believe that had, um, had the canal gone through, well, for one thing, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Okay, because um, uh, when you know, I, I probably who knows what would have happened. You know, I mean, my my dad's story is as interesting as Narcissus. You know, you know, they all moved to Detroit as a uh, uh, as a means to an end because they didn't have you know St. Joseph as it is today is is a beautiful vacation spot. That that but that's what it is. You know, it's a beautiful place to live or vacation. Our hearts are truly in St. Joseph. You mentioned the Balmoral Hotel, and that was, you know, right on the corner of Highway 21 and County Road 84, as we know it today. There were brickworks, carriage factories, all that. What happened? Where did the buildings go? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked that question. I was going to get to that. Um, so, as I said, um, the he comes up with this idea, and in the, in the end, in the end of the day, the Great Lakes and Atlantic Power Canal Company was going to spend about a half a billion dollars. They were going to develop the power in Quebec, which in, in, in turn was going to pay for the entire seaway all the way from Duluth to the ocean way, just generating because they confirmed that that much electricity would power all of Montreal. And so what happened, though, is that Narcisse did not have a good lobbyist. And he had to come up with an enormous amount of capital within about 60 days. I think it was about $200,000 or something like that. And Narcisse could not generate those funds. So he lost his deposit and he lost the rights to that waterway. However, his engineer, Oliver Sweezy, had a very good lobbyist. Oliver Sweezy left the employee of my great-grandfather. And he, with his own partners, formed what they called the Quebec Power and Canal Company, which is still around today. 
So that Quebec Power and Canal Company did develop that in, into what they call the Barhamois. So the Barhamois, the dam, is actually very much in, in use today. That was really the nail in the coffin for Narcissa's dream, because this happened around 1922. So 1922, that really was the last straw. That was his last idea on how he could finance it. So he was making efforts to, he always had Charles Reed and he always had Lord Shaughnessy and he always had uh, Charles Schwab was another one. Schwab is a, a big name, big investor. And he had the Bissonettes and he had these great investors, but it just wasn't enough to complete the whole thing, you know, because they were only going to put in so much. He petitioned Henry Ford and Henry Ford was very interested in the idea. I always tell people, well, Henry Ford was very much into Detroit. He was very much a Detroit man, but he was also into making money. And he saw this as, as a good investment, even though it was going to cut Detroit off with all this shipping. You know, the, Detroit was no longer going to be the port it is today, you know, but he also seen it as an opportunity, right? So even though he had some really keen investors, they in turn started to get nervous as well. But not only did he have these four or five massive investors, he had hundreds of small investors as well. And they started getting very antsy for their money. So Narcisse started selling off properties to satisfy, to satisfy creditors. The Balmoral was probably one of the first victims to that. And I always say that that was a sad day in Canton history. You know, the day the Balmoral came down. But Again, you know, I have to believe that it happened for a reason, but it was uh, it was it was tough to see it come down. I'm sure I've got pictures in my house that show it, you know, being built, you know, and how enthused people were. I have pictures of it as it was built. I have pictures of meetings inside that room. And then in the same series of photos, because I have to retain all history and I have to you know, tell the whole story. I have pictures of it being torn down. You know, and it, it's a sad picture to look at because it was such a beautiful hotel. However, you know, in the end of the day, it became a massive white elephant that it just it served no purpose. So they sold it. And as the rumors go, they say that, you know, there was a, a real shortage of brick in the city of London at that time. They actually broke even on the hotel. Most of the brick went to the city of London, except for the five or six I have sitting up in my yard. He also built a wharf. People are always saying, well, you, you know, you can't even bring a ship into St. Joseph. So he actually petitioned the government to build a wharf in St. Joseph. And uh, to give you an idea what the wharf looks like, it's, it's very primitive. They built great big cribbage that was about, say, 30 foot by 30 foot, and they floated it out, and then they sunk it with rocks. And that was how the wharf was built. Now, the first wharf they built, Lake Huron spit it right back out at them after the first season. After the first winter, it was just decimated. So, the, But the second one they built lasted until about 1922. Even today, on a clear day, if you were to take a and go out on a clear day, you can actually still see the outline of the cribbage. So it's fun to see some of the history still. You had mentioned um, like going through your uncle Napoleon's archives, and I'm just wondering what were some of the favorites, your favorite stories that you found while searching through those archives? My uncle Nap, he was quite a character, you know, and he was so enthusiastic. And uh, I think some of the favorite things are the letters that I found from Narciss, you know, to investors, you know, and, and they're just the way he wrote a letter. This is coming from a guy who never spent a day, you know, past grade school. 
you know, but the way he wrote letters, you would think that he spent, you know, he had his education at Oxford or Yale or Harvard. My favorite stories, a lot of them go around the Balmoral Hotel, the building of the Balmoral Hotel and the pictures, the letters. There was also back around 1910, Narcisse spent, he had offices and homes in New York, Chicago, Montreal, Buffalo, St. Joseph, Toronto. The list goes on, you know, because they had to develop that base for this canal company. So when he's in Montreal, with the help of the exact same investors, he actually bought a piece of property called Ilgrabois. And Ilgrabois is directly across from the little town on the South Shore, the city on the South Shore called Boucherville. And in Boucherville, in, in Ilgrabois, he actually developed a theme park with the, hand, with the help of a guy by the name of Henry Real. Henry Real at that time was the owner of Coney Island, New York City. Henry Real was so impressed with Narcisse that he actually was going to duplicate Coney Island right in Montreal. And this park came to fruition. You know, for, uh, it, it was developed. Um, it even had what they called a Virginia Reel. Virginia Reel was uh, uh, it, kind of a, you know, a very slow roller coaster type leisure ride. Anyways, and it was named after Henry's daughter, Virginia. So that's another one of my favorite stories is because it was interesting for me to see how much faith people had in my grandfather. There was a time when we knew quite a few people who remember working at the hotel for my grandfather, you know, in different capacities, you know. Um, my uncle Knapp, of course, remembered him. He was about 20 years old when he passed away. So he had great stories as well. You know, I mean, Narcisse died in 1940. So at that time in 1940, I had three uncles that were serving in the Pacific Theater. You know, and Uncle Knapp was one of them. Uncle Knapp was in the Corps of Engineer and he was uh, building the landing base, you know, so that they could actually invade Japan at the time, you know, or, or you know, bring the ground force to Japan. Thankfully, that was never, it never had to be used. However, that's where he was. He was in uh, Okinawa. And then he would always end his story, isn't that something? You know, and sometimes I'd say, Uncle Nap, did you make that up? He goes, nope, isn't that something? And he, you know, he was, he was just a character. I, I really loved spending time with him, though. It was a great, great way to grow up. And it was a great heritage, you know, to, to inherit. All right. So when are Heritage Days taking place this year? I'll tell you what got that going. It's a, that's an interesting story. So Narcisse was a play that was written uh, about Narcisse and the development of St. Joseph. And a fellow by the name of Duncan McGregor was the director. And he was amazing. And it was written by a guy by the name of Paul Chufo. And uh, what Duncan did with that is just he took that play and just turned he turned it into a musical. And it was just beautiful. And not only did he turn into a musical, but he employed about 50 local children to play in it. And he taught these kids, you know, little French songs, you know, and just the way that he did it was amazing. Anyways, he asked me, he says, Mark, he goes, you're a carpenter. He goes, I need some sets. I need some props for my set. I said, okay, what do you need? He goes, I need the main buildings of St. Joseph. I said, okay. So I, I, I built miniatures of the hotel. The hotel was massive. The hotel is about six foot by four foot long in an L shape. And it's about three and a half feet high. So I had to build that in four sections so that they could actually carry it. Well, and during one of the scenes, they actually carried out, they put it all together. At the end of the play, I went and picked up my props 
and I stored them at our cottage. Then I stored them at my brother's cottage. And uh, early last summer, my brother called me up, Jared, he's from Detroit. He says, Mark, you got to come get these. You got to come get St. Joseph or I'm going to burn it. And I said, okay, fine. Don't want to do that. So I went and uh, him and I, we set it up in front of this cottage on the lake there. And we had a few beers and we looked at it. And I thought to myself, you know, I could build a house, eh? So I come home and I took my little village and I, I replicated my grandmother's house, which is still there today, the yellow, the yellow tower house. And then I thought, well, I'll build Narcissa's house. And I built that. Well, before you knew it, I built another 30 of them. So then what I did is we decided to have some fun with them. So we set them up in St. Joseph. We called it Heritage Day. And the weather was a little precarious, but it worked out well. And the rain held off. We did it last October, very well attended. So then we decided, you know what, we're going to do it again. And we did it in the spring this year, early, early summer, spring. We were going to do it biannually. We're going to do it twice a year. But this year we're running, we, we're doing a major relic tour with Brother Andre's uh, major reliquary this fall. So we're not going to, it will be back up and running in the spring for sure. We're going to do it again, but it's just a one day, it's just a one day event, but it is a lot of fun. And again, pictures of that are on our website as well. Um, but I replicated about 30 houses and uh, different models. I replicated the wharf. I built uh, the Wexford as well, a ship. Uh, because the Wexford uh, sank in the Great Storm of 1913, um, and it's eight miles off the coast of St. Joseph. Really interesting. And I will link um, in the show notes to the um, stjosephmuseum.ca as well. That's um, wonderful. That's a fantastic archive. Um, is there plans to make it a physical archive? So it was at Hessenland. It was housed at Hessenland previously, but... It's it was really starting to deteriorate to a point where we we're getting concerned about it. So Loretta digitalized the entire archives. And then we've stored, there's about 220, 230 plates. What's why I call plates. They're two feet by three feet wide, and they're just filled with articles and things like that from the day. They're starting to delaminate and things like that. We we're getting a little bit concerned. So they're stored. Um, so the physical archives is exactly where I'm sitting. It's in my house. So my wife and I open our house up to, you know, private visits if somebody wants to come and see the archive still. But is there plans to do a physical one? We're hoping to. We're, uh, uh, we're, what we're hoping to do is probably put it in the, some kind of a mobile trailer that could be stationed at the park during the summer months or during the winter months. But with the way real estate has gone, it's, it's really not viable to build a building and try and maintain it. Um, a lot of this, well, a lot of the stuff went to uh, Goderich and uh, probably what will happen is I might petition them over the next couple of years to see if we can do another stint there. We did what they called Innovative Huron in Goderich and it was there for almost the better part of a year, you know, and I had the bulk of the archives on display there physically because we're true believers that, you know, to for people to really truly believe and you know go and enjoy history, it's nice to go and touch it, see it, flip through the pages. You know, there's nothing quite like that. So, not in our opinion. So it's it's really nice that way. So one day we're hoping to have another physical archives. We just don't. We can't put a date to it right now, though. So interesting, your your family story. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. The only thing I didn't cover, as you're aware of it, uh, Brother Andre was the founder of the Oratory in Montreal. Um, he is now Canada's first male-born Canadian saint, recognized by the Catholic Church. Um, my wife and I were at his canonization in Rome. 
Um, and we are very close with the oratory people in Montreal. So as the story goes, Narcisse had a lot of work going on in Montreal. He had a lot of business in Montreal. I was explaining about the uh, not only the theme park, but also about his promotion of the Seaway in Montreal. Of course, Montreal would have been a major hub, just like St. Joseph, right? It's today. So anyways, he met, he met, he went to go specifically to go meet Brother Andre and see what this was all about. You know, by, by the time 1910 rolled around, Brother Andre was starting to get very well known. Um, so he went to go see the little brother on the mountain. And Brother Andre said, well, I'm, I'm building a, an oratory dedicated to St. Joseph. Well, Narcissus said, I'm building an entire city dedicated to St. Joseph. So the two immediately became friends, you know. And uh, and it wasn't just a friendship between Narcisse and Brother Andre, but it was a friendship that he instilled in his 10 children, who instilled in all his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, such as myself and my wife. And uh, and that continues today, to this day. Anyways, um, he made arrangements. Um, Brother Andre was just getting swarmed with visitors at the oratory. So they recognized the need for him to take a holiday and get away from Montreal because they just wouldn't leave him alone. Thousands of people were coming to his door every day. So the only way he was going to take a break or a rest was going to be to get out of Montreal. So in 1917, uh, he made arrangements for Brother Andre to visit St. Joseph and stay with his son, Napoleon. And while he was there staying with Napoleon, Brother Andre, um, actually looked out at St. Joseph. And you can imagine 1917, St. Joseph was in its heyday. They had, you know, hotels and all these things. And it was just building so quick. And, there, and Brother Andre, they say he used to go and just love to go down, walk, go along the pier, go out on the wharf, go to the end of the wharf, walk around the big block and see all the big buildings. So they come home one night and he says, Napoleon, we have to find a spot for St. Joseph in your town. And Napoleon says, okay. So they went out to his shop and they grabbed a sledgehammer, which is still in my possession. It's in my archives here. And they grabbed a piece of iron pipe, which is not in my possession. However, uh, there's a story to that, but I won't go into that one. And he walked across and right in front of the hotel, he stepped and he looked around. He's seen the, the factories, you know, and he looked at back behind him. And he seen the manufacturing building. He looked to the, you know, all this stuff was being built. Right in the center of it, he drove the stake right in the ground. And he said, this is where I want you to put, I want you to dedicate this spot to St. Joseph. And I always tell people, I can't imagine what Napoleon said. It's like, can't we maybe put him out in the garden somewhere? I mean, this was the most premier prime spot in St. Joseph that he picked. Anyways, my uncle or my grandfather, Napoleon, was very dedicated to Brother Andre and whatever he said went. So they saved that land. And in 1972, when they finally got a statue of St. Joseph, right, it was dedicated, it was uh, donated from the seminary in London. The Cantons donated that little piece of property to the municipality. And that is what has become our St. Joseph Historical Park, our, our memorial park. So that's the story on Brother Andre. Now, my dad, he used to talk about Brother Andre. And I mean, growing up in Detroit as a kid, you know, this stuff went over my head, you know, and it's like, okay. You know, yeah, you knew Brother Andre. But it wasn't until I got married and going to the oratory myself personally that I truly became totally in love with Brother Andre. I told my dad, 
that if they ever make him a saint, I'll bring my entire family and we will go to Rome to witness it. We, we learned that he was going to become a saint, be canonized. So I took my five teenagers to Rome with me, which was a story in itself that I could write an entire novel over of our adventures in Rome and Paris. So we went there. And of course, when I found out that he was going to be canonized, I decided that I would write a letter to the Pope and tell the Pope that the Cantons are coming to Rome and that we'd like to personally thank him, you know, in person. We're going to we're going to we're going to donate a little bit of our time to see the Pope. And uh, anyways, I sent him a letter and I get a letter back from the Pope it says he's too busy, can't see me. But here's free tickets to go to the to the canonization. I said, well, that's great because they're free anyways. But thank you. But I did get to go past the guards, you know, which was interesting to me with the funny yellow suits, the striped suits. I got to go past them into the papal office, not to see the Pope, but to pick up my tickets. That's another story. So anyways, my wife and I are in Rome and she's waiting to go into the Vatican. And I said, well, I'm going to go get us a coffee. So I walked down and there's this fellow walking in front of us. And I mentioned something to my brother or my son, Joe, who was with me. I said, oh, yeah, well, this is brother. And he spins around. And this guy, he looks at me, he goes, I can't believe the Cantons are in Rome. And I looked at him and I said, I can't believe you know who I am. He goes, I was just in the Vatican last night and I just read your magazine. I said, you got to be kidding me. So anyways, he says, come to St. Andreas tonight. He goes, we're having a vigil mass. I said, all right, no big deal. So my wife and I go to St. Andreas, which is a big church in, in Rome, just down the street from the Vatican. And we walk in. And we're immediately ushered to the front. Oh, the Cantons are here. Come. And my wife and I got to carry the candles. And I got an email almost immediately from back home saying, well, I guess you guys are in Rome because they actually put it on YouTube. So, you know, so, but, but again, it's, it's, it's things like that, that really we enjoy. That's what keeps us so interested. So hopefully, you know, we've done a lot with the history. Hopefully you've enjoyed the stories and, People I have. Well, Thank I you so, so much for joining. And it was such a pleasure to, to chat with you today. Postcards from Huron County is made possible thanks to the Huron Heritage Fund, distributed through the Huron County Museum. The museum is one of my favorite spots in Huron County for their interesting exhibitions and Thursday evening international movie screenings. And also thanks to Community Futures Huron. The folks at Community Futures Huron have been supportive not only of my idea, but many others in the community. The Village Toy Castle in Brucefield, the Bayfield River Roads Brewery in Hops, Ice Culture in Hensel, and the Sloman School on Wheels in Clinton, to name a few. And they are truly good folks. According to the Conference Board of Canada, for every $1 that Community Futures Huron invests, another $4.50 of economic activity is generated locally. Find out more about how they may be able to support your ideas at cfhuron.ca. That's cfhuron.ca. Postcards from Huron County is produced and hosted by Mandy Sinclair with audio production by Clint Mackey at Faux Pop Media in Goderidge.